David has blood on his hands, but the temple needs built. Coming up on the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I don't know if you knew this, but we're still the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-host Zach Nerison, Aaron Duncan. We are today starting the third chapter in Niebuhr's book of sermonic essays called Beyond Tragedy. And like the previous two chapters, we will begin our discussion of the chapter, just like Niebuhr begins his sermonic essay, and that is with the selected scripture reading that Niebuhr chose himself for this particular meditation. So, Mr. Duncan, if you could, sir. Aye, aye, Captain. The passages that cover this chapter are going to be 1 Chronicles 28 uh, through 29, verse 1, 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 15, and 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes, and the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, and the captains over the thousands, and the captains over the hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king, and of his sons, with the officers, and with the mighty men, and with all the valiant men unto Jerusalem. Then David the king stood upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and had made ready the building. But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build at any house for my name, because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Howbeit the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be the king of Israel forever. And he said unto me, Solomon, your son, he shall build a house in my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Then David gave to Solomon his son the patron for the porch and, that, and of the houses thereof, and of the treasuries thereof, and of the upper chambers thereof, and of the inner parlors thereof, and of the place of my mercy seat. And David said to Solomon his son, be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed. The Lord God, even my God, will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Furthermore, David the king said unto the, all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom God alone hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. And David said, Blessed be you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. You, O Lord, are the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of you and all you own have given thee. For we are strangers before you and sojourners. And we are all, and as well as our fathers, our days on earth are as a shadow, and there is nothing abiding. 
Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father. Then Solomon, the Lord, uh, then said Solomon, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thickness of darkness. But I have built a house of habitation for you and a place for your dwelling forever. Now it was with now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, our God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, for as much as it was in my heart to build a house for your name, you did not you do dwell in that it was in thine heart. Notwithstanding thou shalt not build the house, but thy son, which shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build it. But will God in every deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built? Mm, okay. So basically, all that's going on here is David is about to build the temple. God says, no, you're not. You got blood on your hands. And I'm sure David was probably thinking, you told me to get blood on my hands. But God told him, nonetheless, you can't build the temple because your hands are unclean. You, uh, you're, you are a war king. And uh, so instead, David hands it off uh, to his son, Solomon, um, and says, okay, you build it. You are young and tender or whatever he says there. And then even when Solomon um, takes, takes it on himself, he ends up saying that not even the heavens can contain God, but I'm supposed to build a house for him. Uh, so uh, interesting. This is a fascinating passage, by the way. What was you guys' kind of initial thoughts on just reading this passage? I love how he just, <clears throat> he takes two things and he kind of, you know, juxtaposes them side by side. And he, there's kind of this, this tension between the two, right? It's like there's this tension between this priestly religion and this this uh, prophetic religion, and I think it's like this, like this tension. That it, it really speaks to life, like it speaks to the experiences that you have throughout life and the tensions that you feel within yourself as you're trying to make decisions about, you know, your political vision for the world. It almost puts you into the story, and makes you feel like David to some degree. Um, you almost feel like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's it's kind of my initial and, thought. And it also like shows kind of the tension that we find in God, like. How can God be both righteous and a war God and yet holy and above the temple and the creator of all people, you know? Um, and that, yeah. So that it's, it's a tension that I think that we do find in everyday life, but it's also, yeah, clearly the tension that David finds here. Aaron, did you have any thoughts as you were uh, um, reading that I, whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> those, those four sections. Yes. So, I think that comes the things that comes to mind that sprout first are just about Niebuhr's sort of method and what he's trying to get at here. Obviously, Zach's point about the dialectical positions between cultural religion versus religion, David and Solomon, he's bringing up these sorts of opposite spectrums to make a dialectic with. And in that, he starts using some words that we're really familiar with, like uh, symbolism uh, about the ark and certain things like that. So, a lot of what we're going to be discussing about the scripture that that um, Niebuhr brings out in the Sermonic essay um, is brought forth with what we've come to see through Niebuhr's uh, frame of interpreting scripture. Yeah, I think Niebuhr does such a good job here. Um, so he Niebuhr breaks this down into four different sections. This particular Sermonic essay. 
Um, I went ahead and named the four parts in the following way. The first part is about the God of the Ark. The second part is I named it the ambiguity of Yahweh um, and kind of the beyondness of Yahweh. The third part um, I called the, the temple and the uneasy conscience. And then the fourth part, the ark and the ark in the temple. Um, and with each movement of these, gosh, like uh, read, reading a reading a, an essay like this by Niebuhr just really shows me the, the wisdom of Niebuhr and how he's able to kind of extract so much wisdom out and just squeeze so much wisdom out of a single story, out of a single text. And kind of with each four of these sections, the, the, the next is always kind of more profound than the last. Um, so let's get started with uh, this, this first section. Go ahead, Zach. I'm sorry. Well, I would just add that he does it in a believable way too, a way that's like he, you know, because some people can be pros at extracting wisdom out of the Bible, but it's just kind of them implanting it there, but he really is taking this narrative and using it as a, something to say, look, here's a, here's an example of this. You know what I mean? Here's a, here's how we can see this fleshed out here and here. Um, yeah. And so it's very like expository, this one, you know, in, in a way. It that, is weirdly like there's always a section where he meditates upon the scripture itself. And then there's always kind of an application, like a real world application about America, you know, that comes, that comes immediately after. Yeah, it's really good. So the, the first section is the God of the Ark. Can anybody explain to me what he's talking about with the God of the Ark? What is this thing? Yes, I've been waiting for this section for two weeks now. <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners, we took off last week, so. Yeah, we did. Um, now, I'll, I'll read a section here, right? Um, so the presence of the Ark in all his material ventures is symbolic of the fact that men are men of God in their warfare that distinguishes them from animals. Men do not fight merely for their existence, though in a sense, every human conflict is a primitive contest of life with life. So seeing the world through this lens, neighbors asking one question, right? What is the basis for war? And how do people justify it? And how do, once we know that, how do we view David's sort of uh, ventures? So Niebuhr makes a couple of points that, you know, war between human beings is not solely. Wait, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting. Let's go back. What does this have to do with the Ark? Well, the Ark is a sort of, self as a justification for the camp war campaign it symbolizes something beyond um itself so as i was just going to say that what neva points out is that human wars are not reducible just to conflicts between life and life they're not just sort of angry squabblings but there's things like culture other things like symbols of very big importance that transcend um you know, uh, are just our present um, imaginations. It links to the past with our ancestors. So there's always something above us, something that reaches beyond us that helps us to justify our wars and, and stuff like that. So, and, but the real story that he's connecting this to is the fact that the Israelites and, you know, or, you know, David and Israel, they're always carting around this bark with this, them yeah. whenever they go into war. 
and it's kind of a symbol that God is with them in this conquest. God is with them uh, in, yep. in, in this particular war. Well, God it, is on their side and not on the side of kind of uh, the, their, their enemies. He kind of reduces it, though, to, I think, almost a, too simple of a concept. Like he says, the God of the Ark is thus the source of what in modern days is, call, in modern days is called morale. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I see exactly what he's doing. It's consistent with what he's putting together, but I don't know that it's, we want to reduce, just based on how the narrative goes, right? The Ark is, is also like, God is having them build the Ark. God is having them take the Ark out and uh, make it a part of their, you know, conquest. Um, he's, so he's, he's, he's utilizing it symbolically though. So what, yeah, what he's yeah. basically saying is, is that it's kind of going with what Aaron, I think that was about to say, um, and he basically did just say it, that humans are not those types of animals that will just go to war for war's sake. And they're not those types of animals that will just go to war for personal protection. In order for me to take the life of another human being, there has to be some kind of transcendent value that is more important than my very life and more important than the life of the other person in order to get me to kill that person in order for nations to go to war, there has to be some transcendent value that lies beyond just the physical world in order to get countries to go to war with one another. Uh, and the arc symbolizes this and that it represents a particular specific interest of it's on the side. And it is like in the Bible, it's on the side of the good guys. And when they lose it, they lose the war. You know, So there's kind of this direct correlation between when God is on our side, when the ark is on our side, we win. Um, and, and it represents kind of this, uh, this idea that our, our value, our God is beyond, you know, even just our physical existence. Um, but he is marching us into battle uh, to fight for some idea. So the morale thing makes, yeah, it might seem a little bit simplistic, but the like if you're fighting for morale, then you're basically fighting for the greatness of the country for, you know, what lies it's, it's more than just survival. Yep. Yeah. So I, I think, I think that we did cut you off Aaron. So I don't know if you want to finish your point about that, but the arc is basically, I, I think at one point he says that uh, the American dream is kind of like an arc of America. What does he mean by that? Um, yeah, I, I have a note here. I just want to read it out. Um, so Niebuhr does say that the American dream is an American god, but it's not just an American god um, for the for the values it holds. It, it holds a universal. So I mean, he goes down a list like Roman values, um, uh, Roman cosmopolitanism, mm -hmm. uh, very much popularized through Seneca and the Stoics. Um, become a, a, a sort of like a, a, a symbol, an arc in of itself. Um, bourgeois culture of, of you know uh, of John Locke and these other philosophers with lib like the ideas of liberty, fraternity, and democracy um, are all like uh, arcs of, of our cultures. Um, and he, I think he says he quotes, and I'm not going to quote the whole thing. He says. That all these things are in conflict with other equally worthy values. Mm. Oddly enough, whilst the Roman imperial, uh, sorry, Roman cosmopolitan ideal 
is an idea of peace through Roman power, that power is brought about through subjugation, imperial expansion. And there comes a very ambiguous and weird tension between peace and power. Um, and Niebuhr draws it out, even the American dream um, and with the bourgeois culture. Yeah. So and what, what would you guys say to this, though? And Niebuhr kind of anticipates this pushback. Oh, we are above. We, we in, you know, modern world, we're not going to, not every war is a holy war. We're not going to war because of gods or something like that. That's a primitive thing. The primitive people did that. What would Niebuhr say to that? So are, wait, are you saying that people's, people say that today? That we're, we're, we're a secularized, enlightenment, oh, inspired yeah. country. <laughs> we're you, not like the, the, you know, the Muslim countries who are, you know, declaring, yeah. you know, uh, a holy war or something like that. We go to war for uh, better reasons than just theological, I, theological reasons. I think that he would say that those better, I mean, based on what he says here, he would say that those better reasons are still in themselves some sort of arc. There's some sort of, uh, yeah. they're pointing towards a higher value, a set of higher values that are beyond those people. Yeah, and, and so he would say that, War always, no matter what epoch you find yourself in, war always either has an implicit or explicit theological dimension mm -hmm. because it is always dealing with values that go beyond the physical. And the, yeah. the presence of the ark is kind of an, an admission of this. And he says, if anything, the primitive cultures had a more... Uh, had a better understanding. They, they had more of a justification for physical, like tribe versus tribe, physical versus physical, our side versus your side, but they still spiritualized it. They still spiritualized war. Um, so I, if anything, I, he said that they were closer to it than, than we are today. I wrote down this note, and this is my sort of takeaway from this whole thing as a summary of this first section, where I put that like all cultural religions, that's, that's Niebuhr's designation for I think primitive and modern sorts of uh, stuff. All cultural religions serve as a representation of our worship. They are uh, representations of our highest values, like mm -hmm. democracy, fraternity, brotherhood, cosmopolitanism. They they have limits to what we can achieve, and Niebuhr brings it out by the example of Rome. Imperial power brings peace, right? So peace is never really separated from violence or conflict. Um, but they serve as our highest values, um, mm -hmm. but we never really fully realize them, right? Yeah. And I think this kind of harkens back to the last chapter on the Tower of Babel a little bit, because it's talking about kind of the God of the Ark kind of represents a particular interest, a particular interest of a particular group. Mm -hmm. And Niebuhr says that that was always the downfall, is confusing the particular for the universal, right? And so when a country goes to war, be it a crusade or conquest or whatever um it's always trying to implement its particular interest upon a universal like upon everybody type of thing so it's trying to make the god of the ark the universal of everything but we find a problem with that and that is and that's going on to the next section this is i i labeled this the ambig the ambiguity of yahweh but the god of the ark i tell me I don't know, try to unpack this for him, but th this is this is kind of one of my notes. I said that the God of the Ark is more than just the God of warfare. 
what what does that mean? I mean, it points to, I think what he's, he's getting at is it points to something beyond, like I kind of alluded to in what I spoke kind of last year, is it points to something beyond the present values that are competing between these different nations, right? We would be consigned to polytheism if we just thought that there was these competing battles going on between these different gods. When, like, as Niebuhr says, the crowning achievement of Judaism is that it was monotheistic. It looked to God who's beyond, who, who's, who rose above, who was beyond. And that's embodied in his rejection of David, who, who wants to build him a temple. It's embodied in the fact that God is beyond the present conflicts, that God is holy, he is other. Um, and Niebuhr really kind of attaches himself to that here. So, so then, Zach, so I'm David. I'm going around killing for God. <laughs> okay. Like, I'm killing. I don't know. Who does he kill? Philistines. Uh, who else? Wh- whatever. I'm killing all these people. And I'm toting around this ark saying this is basically kind of like a flag. Like, th- you know, we represent Yahweh God. And then David goes to build the temple. And God's like, uh-uh-uh. you're not building the temple because you got blood on your hands. What does that mean? Like, why is God doing that? He says here uh, on page 56, he says, David's problem was, how could a man, a man involved in the conflicts of life build a temple to a God who transcends those conflicts and who judges the sins involved in our highest values? And this is the key part here. He answers that initially by just saying various solutions to this problem are offered in this remarkable text. So I, I think that he has kind of a, a multiplicity going on here, a multiple things going on here that he's trying to bring in as an answer to this question, because there's this tension between the necessity of the conflicts of life, but there's also worshiping a God who transcends those conflicts, who's above those conflicts. It also seems that Niebuhr kind of advocates for this theological position that there might be two gods in the Old Testament, one that is allied with the concerns of Israel, and then one who is the judge and redeemer. Um, so he says later on in this particular session that this God, this God meaning the other God, the second God, is not the ally of the nations, but their judge and redeemer. He is not the sanctity of our highest values, but the holiness before whom all our righteousness are filthy rags. I think, though, that that would be a mischaracterization of what he's trying to do, because he's trying to say... Um, one he's because he's saying that both are necessary right the god of the nations and the god of the that transcends because he's basically just saying that the god who um, exists as the tribal god is this nation's closest estimation estimation of who that transcendent god is right they, yeah. they want that god to justify their stuff and so on and so forth but it'll always that that depiction of god will always fall short of the god who is actually it actually represents so it's like i don't think he's saying there's two deities here i think he's saying more like there's the deity we perceive and the, de- the deity we know goes beyond our perceptions. Yeah. I think that that's why he Niebuhr rarely cites another scholar here and points to uh, Julian Benda and says that, and basically says, see Julian Benda claims that there are different, that these are two different gods. I don't think that Niebuhr saying basically that he believes that, but he's trying to draw this out that there does seem to be kind of the schizophrenic nature to our God a little bit, or at least how yeah. we perceive God. And he says, and he ends up making one of the best points, I think, of the whole chapter. But he quotes Benda saying, the God whom Marshal uh, David Villars, uh, rising in his stirrups and pointing his sword to the skies, thanks on the evening of 
uh, domain is not the same God in whose bosom Thomas Akempis learns the nothingness, the, not, the nothingness of all human victories. So he's saying that, so he, he quotes Benda there, but then he brings it uh, back around to this. And he says, David's problem was, how can a man involved in the conflicts of life build a temple to a God who transcends those conflicts and who judges the sins involved in our highest values? He, se- he seems to be saying that, look, this God, typically in a, in a polytheistic religion, these would be separate gods. But in a monotheistic religion, it's just kind of showing the transcendence yep. and the particularity of this God and how that creates and where we're going next, which would be an uneasy conscience. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's completely right. I'm, I'm sorry if I mischaracterized that um, by not going a bit further. But I mean, I think what, what else we can go into at this point is that the, the, the central question to this, this section is not just can how is david not worthy to build a temple god but can anyone can there be anybody who is worthy to build a temple god because as we'll we'll soon to short out you know god picked solomon and david is quick to note that due to solomon's tender age his sort of lack of experience in terms of rules yeah it's a good term, yeah, um, that he's more fit. But Nero points out with astute clarity that, you know, well, Solomon's kingdom built on peace comes from a warring father. Yeah. He makes the point that all too often many peaceful nations are predicated or built upon an in- injustice, i.e. Rome, mm-hmm. i.e. American dream i.e. bourgeois society yeah so th- there's kind of this illusion that maybe david has and maybe just maybe we can say within the narrative god was using this as an example but uh f- to to get to solomon's final claims about this but this potential solution is oh let's hand this off to an innocent and youthful and tender uh son who doesn't have the experience of war and maybe that's going to resolve this issue and and we can finally have somebody who's who's uh, worthy of building the temple but Niebuhr is you're right Aaron Niebuhr is quick to point out that okay Solomon didn't fight in wars but his kingdom still benefited from the stability that David's wars provided um, Solomon's well, high culture and uh, and even his financial ability to build the temple, was bought at the cost of social injustices that were now cemented in the fabric of that society. Well, and he, he has this great, you know, speaking to the pacifism of his day, he yeah. says there, there is a pacifism uh, which seeks by honest religious discipline to transcend the conflicts of history and to make itself worthy of the temple of God. But such pure religious pacifism is comparatively rare. And even if it is, even if it is, parasitic upon the power by which David has established the civilization in which it exists. And it's like, Dan, man, you, you, you can try as hard as you want to escape, but re- realistically, you probably, especially if you're in one of these, you know, in Rome, or if you're in the United States, you're, you're benefiting from the war of other people. And that's yeah. a really good, I mean, that's so perceptive, you know, that's a really good thing to remember that we're all you're, kind of you're benefiting too. from, and you are a part of the system that is still subjecting people and, 
oppressing people. It's, it's kind of I mean, like, um, you know, like the, I don't know if you ever heard of communes, but like, like or I mean, yeah, you've heard of communes, but like there's communes and you start to like look into them. And I watched a documentary one time and they talked about how, you know, they were able to survive and create and sell the local community. Well, then you come to find out that the, in, the industry that they're using in order to make the commune work is only possible because of the consumeristic attitudes <laughs> and behaviors of the people around them, which kind of defeats the purpose of what they were doing in the first place. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's like, man, that's you got to really think more broadly than just kind of like, oh, I'm innocent. No, not really. So we put it in kind of the uh, the battle born republicanism of the Bushites, uh, that type of Christianity. Uh, and then and I've seen this. I, th- I think we've all seen this. Uh, and then so that's kind of like the Davidic kingdom. Oh, you know, we're doing this on behalf of God and stuff like that. And then it will make the opposite mistake in reaction to it and jump in bed with, I'm sorry to bring up his name again, but Harawas, uh, neo-Mennonite type of movements of, oh, we failed in this political venture and we have blood on our hands now. We have to purify ourselves. We have to get all this blood off of us. So we're going to live in this uh, enclave, this communion, uh, this uh this commune, uh, this neo-Mennonite type of community type of thing, where we're going to sit back and pretend that our hands are clean now, that only we can kind of build this church, these uh, us clean ones. But what he's quick to point out here is that that style, and he specifically brings out pacifism, is built into kind of the luxury, and it's a, it's a child of the luxury that the past wars have kind of allowed. Which I think that, like, Pat, I remember Patrick Miller, like, admitting this, you know, that he thinks that maybe there's something to that, that his own pacifism is maybe, um, uh, uh, it's, it's easier because it's built uh, from a lot of the luxuries that the society has given him um, yeah. through maybe sketchy, sketchy means. And I think for anybody trying to explore even the issue of pacifism or of resistance or really any of those topics that have to do with like, how do I resist without resorting to violence? I think they should read this. I think this is a good resource to kind of ponder that and ponder like the web of our interactions and how they're related and how our perceptions of our own innocence can be really detrimental to actually achieving what we're setting out to achieve in the first place. Yeah, like I'm thinking uh, if I'm part of a community that prides itself on the doctrine of nonviolence, of political abstention, um, of kind of sticking, uh, I I think my temptation would be to equate those virtues kind of with my my own innocence. Oh, I am detached from this political world outside, therefore uh, I, you know, my, my church is not guilty of these things a lot of the financial stability I'm sure comes from the type of economy that was created by this political machine. You know, um, you can't so cleanly detach yourself from these areas. To, to be completely honest with you guys, I, I don't know exactly how I think about th- this topic so far. I, I, I'm, I, th- I, bl- I think I'm in the side where I understand like there's like a necessity to, to politics, even among Christians. So like the Hauerwasium model is a bit too detached for me, but then again, I see the attract I, I I see the attractiveness to those sorts of things. Yeah, 
I'm in between where I'm not really sure how, how I, how I feel about it, but I don't want that to take away the voice that I have or others have to, to kind of engage with the political realm. Well, I'll think- admit, like I, I was in, really into Hauerwas. This was probably about a 12 or 13 years ago. I don't know. Um, I just fresh off of reading resident aliens, loved it. Uh, and the main attraction for me is to be able to wipe my hands clean, you know, like yeah. to be able to be done with politics, but really it's, like kind of what Niebuhr kind of opened my eyes to is really, that's just an illusion. And really more than anything, when I'm doing that, I just remove myself from a position where I can actually do something. Um, You know, what I keep coming back to is the fact that, you know, how many Martin Luther Kings need privileged people to use their power to benefit his cause. You know, um, but now I'm just going to forsake that and just bow out of politics altogether. You know, mm-hmm. when I could have actually voted in a way that could have helped him, you know, but I, I, I will admit, like, there's something attractive about that, about well, kind see, of I, washing your hands and being a Solomon. Well, yeah, I mean, I do understand what you're saying. I think the central point <laughs> that, that's, that's attractive to me is the central uniqueness of the gospel itself. And that the world should be interpreted through a Christian lens. Now, I think Niebuhr is doing the exact same process. He's trying to interpret the world through biblical symbolisms and the the gospel. But I I think it's a matter of degree and focus. And that's where the anger comes in. So I I don't necessarily think Niebuhr and Hauerwas are doing essentially different things um they have with, different like red lines that they exactly cross, maybe but that, that's where i'm at a cross with that because i you know what i like to see Niebuhr emphasize a bit more of the uniqueness of the gospel sure you know whatever um but i just don't think that's what Niebuhr's doing that's not his project as what harawas is trying to achieve you know but sorry i'm not trying to mix the harawas but no, I love it. I think this is good. I'm more like I do. Actually, I do think that Niebuhr um, it makes a good case for the uniqueness of the gospel and, and in the way that it can impact us uh, and convict us um, to, to do what's right in our current positions. The very next section is like right on this. Yeah, exactly. The, the uneasy conscience section. Yeah, absolutely. I, let, let's go ahead and go there. Thanks, Zach. Uh, I started off with a quote here. I, I think this will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, you go for it. Give us a quote. Well, I just, I just, I think, man, it just to set for for anybody that's listening. I just think that this sets both an application, but it also helps you see where he's going with this story. Um, he says the real fact is that the temple of God was built not by Solomon's goodness, but by David's uneasy conscience. The church is created not by the righteousness of the Pharisees. But, by the, but, but the contrition of the publican, not by the achievement of pure goodness, but by the recognition of the sinfulness of all human goodness. And it's like, dang. Love that. That is just fire. That was the first, that was the quote I was going to share. So I, oh. I love that you shared that. Yeah. Uh, that is so right on. So we, we have to turn our attention away from our goodness does anything. Our purity does anything. 
but it was actually all along the contrition, the, the uneasy conscience within David, you know, that I can't build the temple. I have blood on my hands. That shows that that shows an awareness of God's maybe a particular interest, but God's ultimate universal interests that are above everything. And I think it, in a simplest way, it somewhat speaks to like what, what, what should bring people to church. I mean, and, and I'm really simplifying here, really generalizing, but, um, it, a, a foundational aspect of the church, like as we would want it to be, is not our goodness. It's not built on our goodness, but on our contrition, our uneasy conscience, right. our recognition that our even in our highest ideals, we still need forgiveness. Love that. And he kind of shows full circle how Solomon ends up in a similar place and that Solomon ends up uneasy about building the temple. And he says, quote, the heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house, which I have built. Um, so even in, like, even in his building of the temple, Solomon realizes that this is still just a house. This, like the heavens can barely contain God. Um, the heavens can't contain God, let alone this, this little structure I'm building down here in Jerusalem, you know, um, but yeah, so Niebuhr makes the, this is a quote from Niebuhr, man's contrition is the human foundation of the church, but God's grace is its completion. Love that. Yeah. Well, I think this is a really nice, <clears throat> you know, for anybody that would, you know, be questioning, because I think one of the places that Niebuhr is often really vague is in the, like, in terms of like ecclesiology, like what's the purpose of the church and society? And I think that this is a really revealing, right? If you're, if you're trying to search that out, this is something you got to read because it helps you recognize, it helps you recognize like what purpose, like what place is like the body of Christ serving in society to society. And um, you can kind of get what sets us apart. What, what sets us apart from the world is the fact that we know we're sinners and we're constantly like self-examining that sin and trying to, to understand it. Um, and trying to understand, trying to understand our reliance upon God's grace, you know, our holiness is never the thing that our, our righteousness is very rarely the thing that separates us from the world. Like if you look at churches, their issues are the same problems that you find in any corporation or any bowling league, you know, (laughs) like any group, like you will find many of the same issues that you will find in a church. Yeah, uh, sometimes even worse, you know, but uh, what sets us apart is our ability to understand that and correct ourselves. And I think that's one of the f- most fundamental errors that people make in their ecclesiology. Yeah, is instead of seeing ourselves as the beacon of like, like the perfect purveyors of the beacon of the higher ideal. I mean, we aspire to be living out that ideal, but it's also like the church is like a place where it's like, Hey, like we, despite your human striving, like come and repent of your sin and believing that you have attained that transcendent higher value. Um, and that actually like makes a lot more sense. Like, I think even like a secular standpoint, like a lot of people that complain about the church or even people that are in the church. Right. I think that if they recognize that that's a core function that the church plays in society or can play in society, I think it would radically change like how we approach like the gathering of the church. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, 
erratic, it would radically change. Instead of going around saying we have, we have the answer to all these problems, which we seldom do, we're just saying, look, like, let's keep striving for good. But at the same time, man, let's, let's gather and let's repent. Let's right. turn from the wickedness that we. And always kind of carry on us um, the, the brokenness, uh, the realization of our brokenness, of our lowliness, of our contrition. Um, great quote here. This is the one I was thinking of earlier. I love this quote. Uh, it's somewhat of a, of a longer one, but I got to read it all. He says, he follows the arc of his own ideals, yet the eternal God speaks to him and he would feign to build a temple which transcends the ark. It's talking about David. He sees the possibility of a truth which is more than his goodness. He contemplates the eternal but cannot name it. When he names it, he gives it a name which introduces again his own finite perspective. He cannot even worship, and this person of the uneasy conscience he's talking about now, he cannot even worship the Christ without drawing images of him, which make it appear that Christ is his own peculiar possession. Ignatius Loyola was a warrior and a monk, and his Christ was a combination of a warrior and a monk. Francis of Assisi was a pure ascetic, and his Christ was a pure monk. Gregory VII was a Caesar and a Pope, and his Christ was half Caesar and half Pope. Yet, insofar as each of these men had something of the eternal vision, he was also disturbed by the disquieting sense that Christ was more than his particular good. So we all are kind of attached to our own vision of what Christ is. Christ is always going to be, in a sense, uh, going to be reflected by myself. I think that uh, the old, I think it's an old Albert Schweitzer quote where he says that so oftentimes historians have been uh, trying to find Christ like they're looking down a, a long, deep well, um, and they don't realize that the image that they see at the bottom of it is their own. <laughs> and I, I think that uh, I, I love that imagery because I think that so, much, so many times when we are looking at Christ, we end up kind of reflecting ourselves upon him a little bit. But there has to be this, what Niebuhr calls disturbing disquietness, being disturbed by the disquieting sense that Christ was more than our own particular good. Yeah, this actually inspired me to preach a sermon, actually reading this inspired me to preach a sermon on um, Joshua and encountering the, the angel or the, the man, right? And he says, are you, are you for us or against us? And the man responds, neither. You know, and he's the commander of the Lord's army. There's kind of this moment of recognition that God transcends even their most glorious pursuits, right? God is saying, I, I, I'm on the side of neither, right? He's, he's establishing his transcendence. Love that. And he says, right, uh, he expects, Joshua's kind of expecting him to say something, you know, to like tell him what to do or whatever. And he's just like, you know, you're in a holy, you're in a holy place. Take off your sandals. You know, it's like, it's, that's his response to his question, you know, about whether or not he's good. He's, whether he's on their side or on somebody else's side, you know, I don't know. I think that's kind of the same idea. Same yeah, thought. it is. Yeah, totally. I love those kinds of sections of the Bible. And, and actually what Niebuhr does next is he applies this to the church's relationship with kingdom. He says that the, the church should be disturbed somewhat by our understanding of kingdom. Um, he says, quote, the church is not the kingdom of God. The church is the place in human society where the kingdom 
of God impinges upon all human enterprises through the divine word and where the grace of God is made available to those who have accepted his judgment. So the kingdom is all, we, we should never equate kingdom and church. It's always at an arm's length um, or the kingdom ends up looking exactly like we do, you know, but it should always be there to kind of judge us and to disturb us, you know, and to make us realize that we are not ever fully the kingdom that has arrived. Now, so this, um, this also plays off the last chapter a little bit, kind of inside the towers we build, there must always accompany them, you know, the, the Tower of Babel stuff, there must always accompany them an awareness that our own particularity, um, no matter how perceivably good it is in this tower that we're building, is never a universal. Our tower, even if it's high and it's reaching the clouds, it can never reach the heights of God. Um, so this knowledge should always kind of disturb us and add an uneasy conscience to our building. So last section, the ark and the temple, the ark in the temple. So this section talks about something really interesting. It says, um, this is one of those points where it's like, man, I didn't realize that this could get any more interesting, but it does. Like he adds an, an extra twist onto the story and talks about how the ark now I'm quoting Niebuhr here, the ark was placed in the temple. The symbol of the God of battles found a resting place in the temple dedicated to the God of peace who condemned David's shedding of blood. The God of the ark who both transcended and sanctified the highest sanctities of Israel was subordinated to the God of the temple, but not wholly excluded from its worship interesting well i think i think what he's <clears throat> i mean he says here priestly religion on the other hand appreciates what points to the eternal in all human values so like he's saying that there's something about this priestly religion that isn't so it's not as rigorous as the prophetic religion and it allows space for appreciating these other human values does that make sense yeah um, good so and maybe we should break down priest and prophet here uh because niebuhr tries to answer this question about uh, the ark being placed in the temple. He tries to answer this with differentiating between the prophet and the priest. What does the prophet always want to do? What does the priest always want to do? Well, I mean, in Niebuhr's estimation, the, the priest, the prophet is always giving us awareness of our own pretensions. You know what I mean? He's always giving us uh, an awareness of how we, we don't, how we need to repent of not aligning to that uh, higher ideal who is God. Hmm. Um, but he says here of the priest, right? The priest uh, does not say whoso loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Rather, he gives family life a sacramental character. He sees the love which is achieved between members of the family as a sign and token of a more perfect love. In that sense, Jesus was a priest as well as a prophet when he said, if ye then, uh, if ye then being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Uh, that is, the imperfect human achievement is a symbol and a sacrament of the eternal. So like he's look, I think that just like really brings together the whole idea. Like he's saying, look, we like we still have to aspire for good. We still have to find value in those things which God is calling us to aspire to, always maintaining an apprehension about 
those strivings, always maintaining an uneasy conscience and a recognition that we need to turn and repent in, in those strivings, right? And always be kind of aware that they can get out of hand and start to go awry. Yeah, I think part of the distinction that Niebuhr brings and kind of Zach brings up, but maybe a bit more clearer here, is that prophetic religion, according to Niebuhr, provides what he quotes, an eternal no to all of our human strivings, our activities. Whilst priestly religion appreciates what points to the eternal in human activities. In a weird way, this is quite platonic. Like everything in the world of becoming mm. points or shares or participates in the realm of being, right? That's mm. the kind of the radical orthodox movement that I'm so in love with at the moment. But there is something in art and literature and science in politics in everything that isn't necessarily bad or is um, dam damnable but can be redeemable but it can't be redeemed through our own strivings mm -hmm. it has to be redeemed by something beyond us that's why Niebuhr points out in prophetic religion and the other God he points to, um, that God, this God is the judge and redeemer. Mm. You know, it's interesting you bring up Platonism because my mind went to Epicureans and Stoics. So oh. I, I thought the prophets are Epicureans, the priests are the Stoics. Uh, the, well, the prophets see that God is completely beyond. Any representation of it is folly, is garbage. Yeah. Okay. It's a waste of time. All right. The Stoics, like the priests, see God in everything, you know, can can find some kind of relationship between the divine. I mean, they're, they're the ones that would say that, you know, they're the pantheists. I mean, that everything um, points to God in some way, even this arc. Yeah. Uh, we're all just different aspects. All these things are just different aspects of what God is, all these things in the temple. Um, but obviously within the Judeo-Christian view, these are tightened up so that the prophet is, there's more of a connection. Like the temple definitely is still a place where God and humans meet, even with the prophet. Uh, but, but yeah, they're quicker to throw out other things that might point to God. Um, and the, you know, there's some differences there between the priests and Stoics, but I do see that kind of differentiation between, uh, you know, the, the prophet sees God as beyond all human striving and the priests see kind of, uh, our striving as being bound up in God's providence. Yeah. I, I see like what you're getting at here in terms of this. And I think like with the Stoic and Epicurean stuff, Yeah. I mean, I would point out Epicurus didn't believe in the gods. Um, well, they, they, they threw a question mark on it. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, but, I mean, like your pantheist point, like it's, it's very much found in Spinoza as well that there's only one substance, namely God, and everything else is a mode of God. So it's, there's, a, there's a sense of dependency of existence on something beyond itself. Mm -hmm. But that, that, that comes straight from Plato and the Middle Platonists, that there's a sort of participatory stuff in existence that relates to God or shares in part in God and whatnot. Right. Um, but yeah. But anyway, um, just thought I'd, make, I'd throw that point out there that I do, I do see that um, 
it's interesting. But both our minds went to. And for, yeah, that's true. And for the record, the Epicureans, many of them did believe in God or the gods, but they were just so distant that they they meant nothing. You know, and that was kind of the point that they, they mean nothing. Nothing can be grounded kind of in our own experience uh, of of the divine. Um, and there's a similar kind of uh, uh, distance there with the prophets that God is beyond even these things, you know. But do you but see that thing? I think you, what you're doing is you're, you're kind of making a, a big interpretive leap, maybe not interpretive leap, but Niebuhr in the, se- in the second section identifies God as judge and redeemer. So in that section, he says that God, the prophetic religion provides an eternal note to all human activities. Now, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying the prophets are Epicureans. I'm not saying the priests yeah. are Stoics. I'm just saying that is a common categorical divide that we see through history. Um, yes. We, we, so we could also do something similar with Plato and Aristotle. I mean, there's, yeah. there's just a similar way that they, a similar method and presuppositions i guess the question is just going to be how do you think the things in the world are redeemable as neighbor's second point well i think that god would have to be both of these things yeah yeah for redemption to be possible is that through the incarnation as the model yes of that incarnation atonement all those all those ways um, like what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the um, second coming type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all of these doctrines. I mean, I, I'll tell you why Like, I had this on my mind is because I'm preaching on Acts 17 this week and Paul, yeah. Paul kind of shuffling between Stoic and Epicurean thinking as mm-hmm. he's preaching to the, to the Greeks and but ultimately ending up with resurrection which is going to be kind of the thing that both of them are going to deny, or I guess it says that some people there were like still wondering about it or something like that. Um, But that's the thing that ultimately brings the two together um, Mm -hmm. is some kind of uh, death, but redemption, death, but returning. Um, But anyway, whatever, let's move on. So uh, I think it's good to uh, read this concluding section yeah on abe lincoln heck yeah oh yeah i freaking love abe lincoln and i love that niebuhr loves abe lincoln and i love his second inaugural which is what niebuhr talks about here so let me just read this uh just a couple pages and this is kind of where we'll conclude it is significant that america for all of its simple religion of the ark had at least one statesman Abraham Lincoln, who understood exactly what David experienced. And he's talking about this uneasy conscience Mm -hmm. and kind of the prophet and the priest kind of coexisting within Lincoln. Lincoln was devoted both to the union and to the cause of the abolition of slavery, though he subordinated the latter to the former. Speaking of the divergent ideals of the North and South, he said, quote, Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. End quote. Here is the recognition of the will of God, which transcends the northern and southern idealism. 
Stephen Vincent Benet puts the insight of Lincoln in the most memorable in, in these most mem memorable words. Quote, they come to me and talk about God's will and righteous deputations and platoons day after day, laymen and ministers. They write me prayers from 20 million souls, defining me God's will and Horace Greeley's God's will is general this and Senator that God's will is the poor colored fellows will. It is the will of the Chicago churches. It is this man's and his worst enemies but all of them are sure they know God's will. I am the only man who does not know it. Quote, and yet if it is probable that God should, and so very, very clearly state his will, to others on a point of my own duty, it might be thought he would reveal it me directly, more especially as I so earnestly desire to know his will. So he's laboring all these particular interests. Oh, this is God's will. This is God's will. This is God's will. And he's saying, no, I earnestly desire to know his will. Continuing on, this is Niebuhr now. Yet this religious insight into the inscrutability of the divine does not deter Lincoln from making moral judgments according to his best insight. He, continue, he continues in his second inaugural, quote, it may seem strange that men should ask the, assist, the assistance of a just God in wringing their bread from other, man, other men's toil, end quote. That is a purely moral judgment and a necessary one. That is devotion to the highest moral ideal we know, which in this case was the ideal of freedom for all men. But Lincoln returns immediately to the other level, quote, but let us judge not that we be not judged. One could scarcely find a better example of a consummate interweaving of moral idealism and a religious recognition of the imperfection of all human ideals. It is out of such a moral and religious life that the moving generosity is born, which Lincoln expressed in the words, quote, with malice toward none, with charity toward all, let us strive to finish the work we are in. This is a religion in which the ark has not been removed from the temple, but in which the temple is more than the ark. Unfortunately, the Christian church manages only occasionally to relate the ark to the temple as perfectly as that. But the example of Lincoln, as well as of David, reveals the possibility. So Lincoln, brilliantly within his second inaugural, was able to balance the interests of freedom and that would, by the way, necessitate war with the divine God who is beyond all of this. So at one, at one point, he's saying that it is immoral that we have slaves. But on the other hand, God's purposes are not our purposes. God is beyond us. And so he's trying to balance both of these as he's speaking to both North and South. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. It's probably the greatest... <laughs> I don't know, this might be a little dramatic, but might be one of the greatest um, works of public theology in the American tradition, um, the second inaugural. Yeah. Mm. I think it's quite a point of irony that in our modern and contemporary deliberations on like racism and slavery in the United States and the significance of it, like on our current events, that you know, Republicans and you know some Democrats 
always point to the fact that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Yeah. Right. And as if that were to say something substantive, but it's nothing. Yeah. It is nothing. But once we point to this, the tension between his like his thoughts about the morality of these things and his recognition of his finitude, right? His inability to grasp the will of God. Um, that says a lot more about ne- uh, uh, Lincoln's sorts of, mm-hmm. you know, statesmanship. Yeah. And through Lincoln, Niebuhr is making the argument, we need that arc in the temple because justice at times necessitates that particular interest. Yeah. You know, we, so, we need the particular interest to reveal justice to us and to, uh, and to get rid of injustice. You know, so that's why we can never take the ark out of the temple. So we definitely need some, we need symbols, uh, symbols to guide us. We need sorts of like spiritualized sorts of forms of symbols to help us see through the veil. Yeah. And, and even kind of the, the virtue of, and, and the value of freedom. Uh, we have to be weary of the fact that freedom is necessity because you, we need to be able to have that language and that value of freedom in order to uh, overturn injustices. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, freedom can be co-opted by particular interests, which we have seen before, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and freedom can be used as a way to actually exploit other people uh, mm-hmm. and, and to mistreat other people. Uh, so, so it it the ark is not the temple, but it needs to be a part of it, of the whole way that we understand God. Mm-hmm. But we have to constantly be circling back to what Lincoln does. Maybe God has his own purposes. That God's will is beyond our will. Yeah, I love I love how he. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you that this has got to be one of the top, uh, especially introspective, almost uh, approaches to public theology in American history, for sure. You know, to be, it obviously wasn't broadcast like you know it is now, but you know that's still a pretty significant moment to be kind of addressing this issue, you know, this dichotomy that faces all people. Um, and I think right now, man, I, I want like, it's like I'm thinking as we were reading this and we're thinking about Niebuhr and I'm like thinking about like, how do I get like my church to understand this? You know, and how do I get people in my church to recognize that you have to have both of these things? I think um, the ark. I think the ark and the temple is a great way to describe it. Well, you know, it's like, yeah, but it, it gets me thinking though. Like, you know, how, I can think of a lot of contemporary politics that are kind of caught up on the ark, right? We've got the ark. We're crusading for, you know, the Christian, Christian nationalism. I mean, they're just openly, you know, flagrant about it now. Um, trying to claim that you know God is on their side. I mean, it's just like the epitome of this what's going on with the yeah. sermon here um i love what Niebuhr says about he kind of equates the ark and the temple to the flag in the sanctuary yeah well, <laughs> and he and he and he obviously says that's bad but even if you get rid of that flag it's still in there yeah yeah that's yeah. a good point yeah no and i think that you know I, i'm just thinking about like this really does it, it it convicts me, but it also gives me like this spark of curiosity about like, or spark of inspiration to kind of figure out how do I, how do I get people to understand this? Because I think that, you know, in our per- current kind of political atmosphere, 
there's a real need for the, the recognition that contrition is not weakness. You know what I mean? That repentance is not weakness. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a recognition that we, we follow the Holy God, not a God who's, you know, bent to our will and our, you know, I think that many of the figureheads of that movement are, it wouldn't help them because I think they are fully aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, but on a, a lay level, right? The, the average Joe, I don't think knows this i don't think they know the dangers of giving yourself over to the to the ark completely you know well i think that we know kind of just by reading this the difficulty that some people might have in doing this because um especially the the point that he brings out from that other scholar that it almost seems like it's two gods you almost have to preach two gods to people because people want a simple answer they don't want a god tied up in kind of these tensions is god for us or against us and that's kind of what lincoln was combating in his second inaugural too is what side is God on? Is God on the side of the North or on the South? And you have to be able to hold these particular interests together with these universal interests in such a way they, that, that they can give a clearer picture of who God is and our temptations to abuse the one um, in our pursuit to aggrandize the other. Yeah. And I think that ultimately, yeah, it's a tension people don't want to live with. They don't want to live with it, right? They don't want to live with that tension. And I recognize why there's some there's a certain anxiety, you know, you want to have clarity in life. And I think God does bring clarity, right? There's something about the clarity of following Christ. Like there's something about the higher ideal of aspiring to be like him. Um, but I think there's also an essence in that in aspiring to be like Christ, we must also have the courage to recognize that along the way we will be wrong. And we may be wrong in a very significant way. Um, a way that damages and hurts other people. Um, and there's no way to, I don't think, avoid that hurt in one way or another. But so I think it really drives home the need for like repentance and as a, yeah. as a function in the, in the life, right. To be able to recognize at the end of the day, I still need to come around to the fact that I may have strived for the ideal of Christ, but I may have created a political enterprise that really didn't work out the way that I thought I wanted, that I wanted it to. I have to realize, I love the quote about uh, Francis and uh, Ignatius and, and, and all those guys and how they gave these really brilliant depictions of who Christ was and those very beautiful Christ. But at the end of the day, they knew that, that there was an eternal uh, aspect of Christ that disturbed them into completely eclipsing their own interest in Christ with that of Christ. And as a, as a white dude, Christian, I want, like, I know no matter how much self-examination I do, um, there's going to be an element of a white Christ still there that I have to constantly, like, we always have to be somewhat suspicious of, you know, um, and the Christ that I have developed, you know, living uh, around white people my whole life, you know, um, that's just one example of many about how we can create a particular Christ but always have to be disturbed beyond it, you know, be disturbed beyond just that. Um, but you still have to function at the end of the day. You still have to pray to Christ. Um, and so for all of the problems that I might have in my own perspective of Christ, I still have to pray to that Christ, uh, but also constantly be disturbed by the Christ that I'm missing, you know, the, the Christ that I don't completely comprehend yet. So good. Any last words? Not for me. All right. Well, that about does it for today's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Hit all the buttons, like, subscribe, and so on. Tell all your friends and give us a follow at, uh, on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor. 
have a good one, everybody. Thanks for, thanks for uh, listening in and stay safe out there.